Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 55. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. BU patches are naturally made patches that, like a plaster, stick onto your abdomen or lower back and deliver soothing relief to painful cramps with natural essential oils. As you might have guessed from all the reviews I've shared, BU period patches are proven to be hugely popular in the endo community. And as a result, the BU team have been getting great feedback about how they best work for the community. The patches are most commonly used in the morning before work or school and in the evenings before bed so that people with endo or painful periods can be prepared for the day ahead or get a better night's sleep uninterrupted by pain. If you're anything like me and your periods come at night, these patches might make all the difference and they they certainly do for me. They help me sleep through, whereas before I'd wake up in pain. They come in a pack of five, so they should last for the majority of your period and you can subscribe to get them every month. They're $6.99 for a pack or $4.99 if you go for a subscription. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps the natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free guide, Managing Endometriosis Naturally. This guide is perfect for anyone just starting out on this journey of managing and reducing their symptoms. This 16-page guide takes you through the natural treatment options and holistic lifestyle changes that I made to begin reducing my symptoms. If you're feeling overwhelmed by which type of complementary therapy to choose from or you're a bit confused by the endometriosis diet, this guide could really help you to get a good overview and allow you to begin taking steps to feeling better. As always, this guide doesn't replace your medical treatment and it's not intended to treat or cure endometriosis, but it does provide you with options that helped me to live well with endometriosis so you can begin experimenting and finding out what works for you. To download, just head to the show notes and follow the link and you can get your free copy. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to the incredible Megan Hallett about PCOS, blood sugar and endometriosis. Megan Hallett is the co-author of The Happy Balance, which she wrote with period expert Nicole Jardim, and that recently came out a couple of months ago. I absolutely love this book and I recommend it to everyone. I've literally just made pistachio ice cream from the book. It's in the freezer at the moment. Very excited for that to set. Um, The cookbook not only gives us uh, an awesome quick stop tour of our hormones, which is written by Nicole, and why health foundations like sleep and stable blood sugar are so crucial, but it also includes 60 really beautifully nourishing hormone feeding and blood sugar balancing plant-based recipes. It's been quite a lifesaver for me because I think when I started eating for my hormones, I'd got into a really good rhythm in terms of like an anti-inflammatory diet. But then when I read when I read Woman Code, it just completely threw me off trying to create meals that were blood sugar balancing, anti-inflammatory and hormone kind of matched to each phase of my cycle. So like hormone balancing. I just found that really hard and I really kind of felt uninspired by the foods that we were eating. So this this cookbook has been amazing for that. Megan is a certified integrative nutrition coach. She's studying at CNM to become a nutritional therapist and is also a food writer and recipe developer. Go check out her Instagram. Her recipes look incredible. And as you can tell from the length of this interview, I'm really sorry it's so long. I loved talking to Megan so much and ended up getting really specific with her about the ins and outs of balancing our hormones. I 
I guess to some of you, I might ask some weird questions, but I figured that if I was kind of getting stuck and hung up on certain things, then some of you might as well. So at the risk of like sounding really, I don't know, finickety, is that a word? Um, Yeah, I just thought I should ask. In this episode, we talk about Megan's experience of PCOS and the kind of issues around handling both PCOS and endometriosis, which a lot of people do have, managing PCOS with blood sugar balancing, what blood sugar balancing actually is and why it's important for endometriosis as well as PCOS and other gynae conditions, and a lot more as you'll come to hear. Megan's book is available on Amazon and wherever good books are sold, so I highly recommend checking it out. As always, I really think you'll get a lot from Megan. She has so many great tips and she has a very accessible approach to hormones. So I hope it's not overwhelming. I hope it's just really informative and you get to take away some key things that will help you. Here she is. Could you tell us about your experience of PCOS? Because obviously this is a podcast about endometriosis, but there are so many crossovers with hormonal conditions um, and reproductive health conditions. Um, and I know of many people suffering with PCOS and endometriosis, and they can kind of be managed together, but it takes understanding, you know, the details of PCOS to do that. Um, so yeah, I was wondering what your, what your history of PCOS was and where you are today with your symptoms. Yeah, it's a lot more common than I think I ever thought it was. Like yeah. you said, I'm hearing of so many more women kind of coming forward, struggling with both of these problems. Um, so I, I kind of describe my PCOS as when I was a teenager, I had this really long kind of painful puberty. I kind of saw my friends, they were all, I mean, obviously puberty is never fun, but they were all kind of fine with their periods and skin was never really an issue or they would kind of, they blossomed. And I kind of felt that I was just left behind with awful skin. You know, my weight was just whatever I did, no matter how much I exercised, no matter how little I ate, which I guess we can talk about in a bit, but it, it just really, really affected me. The fact that everyone around me seemed to be fine with their health. And I was the healthiest one. I was, like I said, exercising every single day, eating as healthy as I possibly could be, but nothing seemed to be working. I was not necessarily overweight, but just very frustratingly could not shift weight. Um, I had, like I said, I kind of had very irregular periods from when I started my period to leading up to about 18, when I actually had a, like two years or so where I didn't have a period at all. Wow. And that I think was really a kind of a warning sign. Um, and I have a very pushy mum, and she was like, no, like we need to go get this sorted out. And I'm quite thankful that she did really, because then that led to the diagnosis of PCOS that I think kind of at first was a bit of a shock, um, as any women it is but it was almost quite relieving that everything that I had been struggling with you know I also struggled with my hair and I struggled with I guess moods as well was probably my one of the biggest things I had so much anxiety and I still do struggle with it um but I could never really put my finger on why it was so bad given the kind of amazing loving environment I was in and I think to have that diagnosis that no actually you're this is just your genetic makeup. 
this is how it is was a little bit relieving at the same time. Um, however, it still didn't really solve anything because back then, and I mean, generally speaking, you know, the NHS and our GPs do like, they mean so well, but the information that I was given was nowhere near the information that I have kind of learned from myself and get from professionals that are specialized in the field of PCOS. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. and it was mind blowing the fact that I was honestly at 18. I remember it so well. It was the day I got my A, my A level results. Yeah, my A level results. So I was on this high going to uni. And then I was told that, you know, yep, your scans have come back and your blood tests have come back. They're usually the two things that they'll do to diagnose you um, was that you have PCOS. And I was told you're probably going to struggle having children, which obviously at 18, it's like, oh, my God. Um, and you know, the, the thing you've got to do now is to lose weight. And I mean, like I already said, it was just this case of kind of throughout my teenage years, trying my absolute hardest to lose weight and seeing no, nothing come back, um, really, really affected my kind of mental health, um, as well. Um, so that was kind of the, the initial advice given. I gave that a go for a couple of years, um, but didn't really have anything, um, any success with it, I guess, um, try to eat as healthy as I could again, led to a bit more restriction, led to an eating disorder where I was severely under eating. And then if I ever overate, it would kind of turn into this real binge eating cycle, which I know now probably just amplified my symptoms completely. I think one of the biggest things with PCOS is that your diet needs to be kind of consistent regardless of kind of what route you take with it. And I, yeah, so I guess I was just stuck for the for the next kind of part of the year. Still didn't have a period, um, and then went back to the doctor and was told, "Okay, so we're going to put you on the pill." Um, and at that point, because my hair was falling out, I just all I wanted was a period. All I wanted was my skin to be clear. Um, and I think for most women, like with PCOS, we and to be honest, quite a lot of hormone imbalances. You do everything right. You'll do you do everything you're told. You eat the way you're supposed to be eating, and you just don't get anything back from your body. Um, so it was very frustrating to kind of find out that, regardless of doing everything the way I was supposed to be doing, or what I thought I was supposed to be doing when I kind of learned about it all those years ago, wasn't working. So I would be put on the pill, and I was on the pill for a good couple of years, um, a little bit while I was at university. And it really did kind of act as this magic pill as it does masked all the symptoms had what I thought were regular periods, um, and had glowing skin was got to a really kind of nice, healthy weight, um, had the time of my life at uni, (laughs) um, but was still kind of, you know, not sleeping a lot, going out a lot, eating not as well as I could have been. So when it came to come off the pill, and I kind of made that decision purely based on woman code, um, all these amazing resources that we have today. Um, I made that decision based on the fact that I thought I could do this myself, um, came off the pill and then was just greeted, of course, with all these symptoms, symptoms amplified. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find they came back worse? Yes. In many ways, my skin, definitely. Um, my hair loss was just ridiculous. It was, I think I, I think I went through a year of just this continuous hair shredding, um, and regardless today of what I do, so I'll obviously talk a little bit about how where I am today. But the the hair thing is still my biggest kind of 
challenge everything kind of really did resolve itself throughout the right kind of protocols and the right steps but hair just seems to be one of those things for me um and I so where was yeah so I kind of came off the pill had all these symptoms amplified I like to say that really when and I mean I think the birth like I think any form of birth control in one way is so empowering for women and I think it's done so much for us so I never want to knock it yeah but I do think that we are given it in the wrong circumstances I think I can't remember the statistic but it's a really high number of women are giving given it not to prevent a pregnancy but because of symptoms mm, yeah I can't remember the stat either but I I know what you're talking about and it's crazy it's so crazy the fact that we are never kind of told told this I think they they of course it is a really kind of quick and easy way to like you like put a cork in the the bottle um on these symptoms but at the end of the day you're kind of you've shaken up that champagne bottom so whenever you bottle whenever you take the cork out it is just going to explode um so I think if you are going to go on any form of contraception just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons yeah and that it's not to fix a hormonal imbalance um yeah and that there's like a level of informed consent there. Like you really know what you're signing up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you, you just do all your research and make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. Um, but yeah, so I came off the pill and really kind of slowly, slowly, slowly worked my way up to learning about nutrition and learning about my lifestyle and all these changes. And honestly, it was the absolute opposite of what I thought I was supposed to be doing at 18. It, it was obviously kind of stopping exercise for a while doing a lot more lower intensity stuff and my diet completely changed so um really I think knowledge was power in this case um and then from that point I did a um nutrition coaching course and I'm now studying nutritional therapy so I think I really like to say that I've taken a bad situation and made it into a good situation um and I love just helping other women that have been in the same boat and kind of kind of showing that really good nutrition and implementing lifestyle choices and changing certain things that you might have not been told by your doctor is absolutely possible and it's an absolutely possible way to kind of manage those PCOS symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Today, I mean, like anyone who has PCOS, my diet is super consistent. I know what I'm doing. I Every single day I wake up and I make sure I'm moving in the right way. I'm nourishing my body in the right way. But there's always going to be ups and downs. I love the saying that healing is not linear. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure everyone listening can relate to this. That I think if you expect yourself to kind of get better or you see this kind of healthy image of yourself in the future, while that's amazing because mindset is so important, it's not necessarily realistic. You are going to have bumps in the road. And I think it's how you tackle those bumps. Like, for example the last few months I've had extreme kind of anxiety and I've had a lot of stress. Um, not really any reason, but just because I'm quite a type A person and I take that stress on quite badly. And I noticed again, like those old patterns with my hair kind of shredding came back and it's not a, a not an easy, it's not an easy kind of recovery to just kind of snap your fingers and get back to that. It's still get back to that kind of point of balance it still takes time but I think it's about honoring and trusting your body that it will heal if you give it the right tools to do so yeah I I love that you share that because I think as um 
as people who talk about their health publicly, sometimes I feel this pressure to pretend that I'm completely okay and like healed. And I never do. I never because it it would be a it would be a lie. And mm-hmm. like obviously, you're saying hair has been a thing for you that has continued, and mine is like fatigue. Um, yeah. And I've managed to kind of get on top of the brain fog, but the fatigue I I haven't. And it it's really interesting because it is about that ebb and flow. I the fatigue is worse when I'm burning myself out, and because I'm a type A personality as well, I do burn myself out. And it's like this constant like I don't know what the word is like push and pull of trying to work out like where where's that where's that comfort space where I can yeah not be not be exhausted absolutely and I found that I think a lot of my stress recently has just come from the book coming out and pressure that I have felt to be perfect because in the introduction of the book I talk about how I've obviously naturally healed myself and managed all these symptoms which I have but at the same time like I said it's never going to be this linear thing and I really really struggle um and I mean it's getting better but I really struggle kind of finding that balance of being this person that people want to come to um to seek help and advice and kind of and tr- and really work with because I have done it myself and I know what I'm doing. But then I think if I'm too vulnerable and if I talk about my symptoms, so true. So it's so true. And That's I think exactly my problem. But I just feel that like, why would anyone want to work with me if I'm still struggling? Yeah. Um, but then, so I actually spoke to my to Nicole, who is incredible. Nicole Jarden. She wrote the forward of um, my book, The Happy Balance, and she said that it it's these experiences that we have that make us who we are, and they make us able to to be the best kind of health professionals and they make us because we've done it and we know what we've gone through and we can have this kind of sense of empathy and and it's so true you know whenever I work with clients now who have gone through stressful stages in their lives where they've lost their period or you know they've struggled with their hair it just I can really really relate rather than if they had gone to a male doctor who just has no experience in this um in what they're going through and just can't relate on a personal level. So I, I do, I, but it is a fine line between how much you're kind of comfortable sharing and how much you think it's going to help someone else. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's definitely a, a balancing act. And I, I do think though, that from my experience, people really relate to sharing stories and I guess it's just trust in that and trust in how people respond. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would love to kind of dive into the ins and outs of PCOS because I know myself, like it's really easy when you've got endo, for example, to just zoom in on endo. And and something that I've learned recent, well, in the past couple of years is can be easy to dismiss symptoms that you have as the one condition that you know you've got. Yeah. And I made that mistake with having interstitial cystitis. I kind of just thought it was something to do with endo for years, but it was getting progressively worse, but my endo was fine. And then worked it out, what worked out what was happening. So for people who aren't really familiar with PCOS, what what is it and what kind of causes it? And on a kind of biological level, what's happening to our bodies when PCOS is at play? Yeah. So I'll just say that I had the same situation where I was kind of so I went to an endocrinologist a couple of months back when I was really, really struggling with my hair. And we found that it was 
a slight um, issue with my thyroid. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And I, because I had always thought, oh, my hair is about my PCOS, yeah. um, you know, the androgen access, um, excess in my body. So I had been throwing all these supplements and really dealing with that. And then to hear that it was actually something else that is really, really strongly linked to PCOS um, to have a slightly sluggish thyroid. Um, and I, it was a little bit like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> it's this other thing. Um, so I completely relate to that. Um, and it's interesting because generally speaking, um, in terms of the protocol to kind of balancing your hormones and dealing with hormone health, they're very similar. But there are still little things that you kind of have to tweak to to kind of address this other thing very interesting you said that um yeah so pcos is a metabolic endocrine um um, syndrome i say it's a syndrome because it's not a disorder it's a kind of a collection of symptoms so like i said acne no periods or very irregular periods so a very long cycle um uh weight kind of weight gain that you can't really explain. Um, and no matter kind of how much you exercise or how little you eat, um, it still doesn't shift. And I'll kind of go into that in a minute. Um, but, um, hair loss, hair growth, but more in kind of the places that you don't want it. So a lot of women find that they'll get it around their jaw, around their chin, um, kind of male pattern hair growth. That's kind of how to describe it. Um, And it basically, I mean, so there is a criteria for it, but we're kind of, as we go on, we kind of learn that you don't necessarily have to qualify for all of these things to have PCOS. So it's um, polycystic ovaries. um, And then it will be, it will be, so that's the first one. And then um, irregular periods or no periods. um, And then signs of kind of androgen excess. So like um, male testosterone, male testosterone, the male hormone kind of testosterone being high. And again, kind of leads to all those symptoms that I spoke through. Um, But you don't necessarily have to have cysts on your ovaries to have PCOS. And just as you don't necessarily have to have, if you do have cysts on your ovaries, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have PCOS. I hope I've just said that right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I've got cysts on my ovaries, but I don't have PCOS. Yeah. So it, it basically, as I think the main defining thing is having an influx and very high levels of androgens kind of circulating in your body. And that's um, like testosterone, right? For people yes, who, yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, and there's, it's basically, um, you're struggling to convert, um, testosterone into the form that your body can actually use. So you just have kind of it flowing around regularly. Um, and it's not kind of hitting the, cells that we want it to be hitting. Um, A lot of women with PCOS have low progesterone um, and estrogen. So there's a, but you can, but it looks different for everyone. So what, what PCOS is for me is very different to the next girl and our symptoms will be different. That's why I think we either under, under diagnose it or over diagnose it. Um, and so many women who are like, yeah, I have PCOS because they have all these symptoms, but really it can be kind of a handful of different problems. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think obviously every, everything to do with our hormones does look different in different people. Um, but yeah, so I think that's why, because it's a syndrome, that's why it's so difficult to kind of, we can't, we don't really have a solution for it. 
Um, we don't really have, and it can't be cured. Um, and I think that's the thing that does scare people. So it really is the case of throughout your life, you just have to implement lifestyle changes and changes in your nutrition that control your symptoms. Um, and there isn't really a cause either. We know that there is a gene, but generally speaking, it is, I mean, I don't really like to say it's a cause, but it is heavily linked to insulin resistance. Uh, and that's why I kind of say it's a metabolic endocrine uh, syndrome rather than it just being a problem with your hormones. Cause it's the, there is a really, really strong link to insulin resistance. Um, and that in itself plays a huge role in how you tackle kind of getting tackle the root cause and kind of addressing the root cause. Um, and a lot of women who have kind of PCOS and endometriosis, I think the main reason is because, I mean, we don't really know. Mostly I think it's because the two are quite common, um, but it is kind of the inflammation that you have with endometriosis does trigger the ovaries to kind of produce more testosterone. Um, and when it comes to treating, generally they treat endometriosis first because it's the thing that kind of causes the most pain. Um, and also it's the thing that's resulting in a, this kind of hypersensitivity to the androgens within the body. Um, so generally speaking, it's the case of kind of treating that first or kind of working proactively every day to kind of do what you can. And then the, and then you're kind of also, once you've kind of got, I mean, I don't say get a hold of it, but once you've kind of, once you've dedicated your focus to that, you then kind of can start thinking about kind of lowering those levels of um, those androgen levels and kind of addressing the insulin resistance and inflammation as well can ampl amplify um, ins the insulin kind of levels in your body. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about PCOS. Um, people say that it goes away after childbirth or, you know, it can go away with, I heard recently someone say that it can go away off with menopause, um, <laughs> which is funny because it doesn't. Um, and in fact, because you're, it's just the case of whatever happens at any stage of your life, it's about tackling where your hormones are at that point. And I think it's never going to look the same at every stage of your life. So my PCOS now doesn't look the same as when I was a teenager. And it probably looks very different to someone who's going through perimenopause. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think with anything though, it's really important that if you do suspect that you have any of these symptoms, or if you feel a little bit kind of unsure um, a blood test is the kind of the main, the main way to go. And then obviously they can do a scan to see if you do have, what they'll see is like a string of pearls on your ovaries. Um, but like I said, you don't have to have the, the kind of the cysts on your ovaries to have PCOS. It is generally now about the kind of the, the high levels of androgens. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about PCOS. <laughs> so that's like, thank you for that little science lesson. Um, <laughs> Overly <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I do kind of freak out a bit when I have to talk about science because although I, I do understand it, I'm still like, oh, I just know about the food. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, completely. I understand. Um, but th yeah, that's piqued my interest. So with the so you might there might be a, a genetic component there. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. it the case that that gene could be triggered? So, for example, with endometriosis, 
celiac disease can be a trigger for endometriosis. And there's, I can't think of any other examples right now, but you can sometimes have a trigger. Would you say, and this isn't about putting blame on people because we live in a society where we only know what we know. Not many of us have grown up believing like we're not taught how to control our blood sugar. We might be taught how to eat healthy, but not nothing to do with blood sugar. So would you say that there's a lifestyle component that can be a trigger? I definitely think so. I don't know whether, do you know what? I think I would say, call it a trigger. Um, I think that we can kind of, I think if you don't have the right knowledge or the information about how you should be eating and how you should be living with PCOS, I do think it, it does trigger it. And I think it can be a lot worse. Um, you know, you put two women beside one another and while their bodies are probably very different, if one is not focusing on blood sugar and having tons of sugar throughout the day and having all these kind of simple carbohydrates throughout the day and not exercising or maybe exercising too much versus a woman who is kind of, I don't like to say doing everything right, but kind of following this protocol that we know does work, um, the results are going to be so different. So I do think with PCOS, the kind of the main, the the cure, so to speak, or the thing that puts your symptoms into remission most successfully will be nutrition and lifestyle. Um, but yeah, so there definitely, there definitely is. And I think, like I said, when I was younger and I really struggled with food, I, I think that that was a trigger for me. I think the fact that it was so inconsistent and I went from kind of starving myself to then overly binging on sugar, Mm. kind of, and then also having quite a stressful personality type, all those things combined really, really amplified my my symptoms. I don't necessarily think it turned my PCOS on because I always have PCOS. I always kind of struggled with my periods, but it definitely amplified the symptoms. That's how I would describe it. I don't necessarily think it would trigger the gene, but I think it would amplify your symptoms. And how can you develop PCOS? Can you not have it and then develop it? I think you'll always have it. So you've had it since like the gene was there since birth. And then when you get your periods, it starts. Yes. Yeah. I think they, I mean, I've read a couple of studies. I've read one study recently that says that it is passed on down through. So if your mother has it, has the, um, the gene, you'll have it. Um, but then when I was told, um, when I was first diagnosed that it's more on your father's side, um, so if your auntie has it on that side of the family, you'll have it. But, you know, it's not. And also it doesn't necessarily have to be related to this gene. Like we have, we see women who have it and there is no one else in their family who does have it. Right. Um, it is just, um, it's just one of those very unfair things. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. So you mentioned insulin um, in when you, when you were explaining what, can help and what can hinder PTOS. So could we dive into what insulin actually is? Because I think I know that until I started studying hormones, I was just like, oh, that's just something that like people with diabetes have to worry about. Like my brother has type one. So I was just like, yeah, John has to deal with that. I don't know what it is. Um, So could we talk about what it is and why insulin and blood sugar are so important to manage managing PCOS and other hormonal issues well our hormones in general (laughs) yeah so insulin itself is a hormone so it's released by the pancreas um and I like to kind of think of it as this little 
kind of sugar police type thing. So what it does is when you have a carbohydrate or a form of sugar or glucose um, that kind of, and it depends what type of carbohydrate you are having. So say if we have, um, if we have some sweets or, or I don't know, something that's quite sugary, um, your pancreas releases insulin. And basically what it does is it takes the glucose in your blood and just wants to shove it into cells for you to use. So we, first of all, first of all, the glucose will go to your brain. It will then go to your liver. It will then go to your muscles and then anything that kind of isn't used by those, um, organs will go in, will be pushed into fat cells. Um, so I like to think of that when I think about the list of priorities that we do need glucose. We need glucose to think we need it for our muscles to, to work properly. And also our liver itself. I mean, we know for hormone health, it does a lot of the kind of the detoxifying of metabolized hormones. And it's so, so important in just kind of making sure that everything in our body functions the way it should be doing. So glucose and sugar and carbohydrates are important. But what happens is we just see in today's world that it is and we, we consume way too much. So the amount that's actually needed by the brain is very small. Um, and if you are putting if you're consuming too much, then there is a point where your muscles just stops using it and it builds up. And if you're kind of consuming all these carbohydrates and you're not moving and kind of burning that glucose off and out of your muscles, then it just it builds up. And what happens is we can develop insulin resistance where you're just your pancreas is pumping out way too much and all your shell all your cells are like, no, we have enough. We don't need any more. So it will kind of almost stop receiving it in the simplest of kind of terms. It will just stop receiving it. Um and then you have this kind of excess in your blood. So what happens is when we kind of consume something quite sugary or quite carbohydrate rich, we release all this insulin because we want to use it. So I think the body almost interprets sugar and carbohydrates in the form of a stress because it it views it as right, we've got this fuel and we need to take it on and we need to use it and we need to run with it almost. So it kind of, in some ways, your body views it as a form of stress, which we know for hormone health just is one of the worst things that we can be doing for our body, stressing it out. And it's a physical kind of stress. Um, so that's kind of what insulin resistance is. Your body just becomes so kind of overwhelmed with it that it just stops using it. And the way that that kind of reacts with PCOS and a lot of kind of hormonal imbalances is that, again, your cortisol kind of rises because it views it as a form of stress on the body. It, it views this kind of excessive amount of glucose as a form of stress. And it thinks that we're under threat because, you know, we need this fuel to run. Um, and it also means with PCOS that this kind of excessive amount of sugar in the blood, it just forces your body to kind of that already quite high level of androgen circling. It just, it continues to pump them out. So basically if you're thinking about PCOS, you have a high level of male, um, male hormones, um, or testosterone. Um, I think it just, it continuously kind of joins that loop up of, you know, you've got this, um, this unstable blood sugar and we don't really know what's going on. Um, therefore we're going to release more cortisol, which then has a knock on effect on the way that your sex hormones react within the body and how many and what they're doing. Um, so 
insulin really, when I kind of talk about PCOS and insulin and blood sugar are the kind of the, the main things that affect um, how our sex hormones behave and what they influence and what they do. Um, so yes, yeah, so that, so that's why I always like to start with the kind of the controlling the blood sugar. Um, because if we are constantly having these kind of these dips that are, that are kind of a quite carbohydrate rich, quite sugary rich meal, um, spikes, and then you're, it's obviously going to come down sooner or later. And I think, I don't know if you've ever had like a massive bowl of pasta while it is delicious, yeah. you feel quite hungry straight after yeah and how that's how we know that it's affected our blood sugar you know you feel hungry an hour later you might feel a bit tired um and it's those kind of peaks and the the straight those dips afterwards that are really going to have a knock-on effect on the on where your hormones are in your body I think um Nicole at the start of the book describes it as the master hormone in our body you know the insulin and it's the the, the hormone itself that so um the insulin and the cortisol together are the main kind of dictators of what's going on with the re- rest of your sex hormones how many androgens are kind of in circulation and where your estrogen's behaving because if you think about it this kind of excessive release of insulin in your body and this kind of excessive cons- consumption of sugar and fuel is a sign like i said that your body's under threat and that in itself signals to our ovaries and to our body that we don't need to be ovulating. We don't need to be bringing another child into this world while we're under threat because that's what it is. Your body is viewing too much glucose and too much sugar as a threat. Um, so that's why we find if we're kind of having issues with insulin resistance, that these symptoms of PCOS are amplified. So the not having a kind of a fully formed or a or a strong, healthy menstrual cycle, um, and the the symptoms of having high testosterone levels in our body. So the like the viewing the lots of sugar and high insulin levels as a threat is that like the body's way of being like, well, we need to burn off this sugar, so I'm going to pump off pump out cortisol, but then our body reads cortisol as a threat. Yeah, so it's it's basically it's basically your body like views like why are we suddenly consuming this fuel and because it assumes we want to run yeah absolutely right so kind of um it takes that's why we put it into our cells to use so everything else that isn't in there it's it's just again like circulating in our body so it it does view it as this kind of this like this signal to run um and in terms of when our cortisol is high it, our bodies, they, when we are under threat and when our cortisol and adrenaline levels are spiked, and I will say that it does take longer for your cortisol to be kind of well, spiked or released than it does for adrenaline. Adrenalines are kind of short term, you know, you've just had a shock. Um, someone's just made you jump. It kind of, it calms down a lot quicker. Cortisol is more of a, it's a longer term. It's kind of more of a chronic, um, stress hormone and it takes longer for us to kind of reduce those levels back down. So that's why we see so many women that are just constantly, um, at this level of, um, that that suffer from symptoms of kind of chronic cortisol, high chronic, high cortisol, because 
they it just takes longer for us to calm down from it um so i think our bodies obviously view this um this excess amount of stress hormones in our body that something's happening so it puts all our attention and all the kind of the the energy i guess into running so into our limbs into our heart so it's kind of pumping blood so we can run into our lungs so they can take on air and the kind of the superficial things so our hair our skin our digestive system and our reproductive system are kind of put on the back burner. Um, and that stress in itself and kind of managing stress with PCOS is so important because we want to be having healthy cycles and we want to be able to digest our food to make sure we're getting all those nutrients. So when you're chronically stressed and when those cortisol levels are raised all the time from an overconsumption of glucose and being in this kind of state of fight or flight, regardless of where the source is coming from, the the things that we want to be focusing our attention on to be getting better and to be healing are kind of, again, just put on the back burner and we don't need it. We don't need to bring a baby into this world when we're stressed. (laughs) That's the kind of the very, the very kind of simplistic way that are, um, to look at it. Yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you. So all of everything that you've learned and your experience inspired you to write your book, The Happy Balance, which you co-wrote with Nicole is it Jardim or Gardim I always say it wrong Jardim (laughs) um so yeah so you wrote this book and can you tell us a bit about the book and why eating for our cycles you know you've kind of touched upon that on the science on the science level of it but um yeah why is eating for our cycles so um integral and what kind of approach do you take to that in the book Mm mm-hmm so I, this is something that I learned about not too long before actually writing the book. Um, and as soon as I knew it was a thing, I kind of dove straight into it headfirst. Um, because I think we really forget that we essentially are different women and we're different people at each point in our cycle. Um, our hormones are fluctuating in ways that really influence the way we behave, how we feel, our mood, our tire, our, our levels of energy, um, our levels of hunger. Um, and I think it is so amazing to think that food and moving in a certain way can make us feel better. Um, and they can almost nourish our body in ways that it wouldn't, that a certain food wouldn't at a different point in our cycle. And I don't like to get too kind of bogged down in the fine details because I think if you want to have an apple <laughs> on day two, have a day an apple on day two. Like don't think don't think, oh, I can't have this thing because it's not in line with where I am in my cycle. Generally speaking, I like to say eat an abundance of healthy whole foods that are going to nourish your body. Um, focus on blood sugar, focus on supporting your detox pathways. But once you've kind of got all that down, cycle syncing and seed cycling together can be a really, really nice way of kind of making, of kind of getting to that level of that kind of that healthy ratio of progesterone to estrogen um, that we need to have a healthy kind of well-formed cycle. Um, And we also forget, like I said, our hormones are fluctuating so much at different points. So when we have high levels of circulating estrogen, we really, really want to be ensuring that we're having um, lots of fermented foods. For example, we want to be making sure that we're 
getting the most out of our gut and it is doing the job of kind of ensuring that we don't have this high circulation um, of hormones at points where we don't want them. Um, And there are ways, so with, with PMS, for example, I think there are some simple tweaks and it is different when you have, um, when you do have a, a very kind of significant hormonal imbalance, but for the, for the average woman who just experiences like minor levels of PMS, where they're having a little bit of pain and it's, it's bearable that tweaking what you're eating at that point can actually change the game. Um, and I think seed cycling in itself is the most basic level of this. Um, and it's something that I find super easy to implement if you're not going to kind of take on the full, full kind of the full cycle sinking, um, diet and protocol just yet. So with seed cycling, we add in flax seeds and pumpkin seeds from day one to day 14 of your cycle, day 14 to 13, whenever you ovulate. Um, and this is just for your kind of standard 28 day cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from about day 14 to 28. So the last two weeks, you're doing um, sesame seeds and sunflower seeds. And I like to do that just two tablespoons in a smoothie on a salad. Um, if you like tahini, that's an amazing way to get in those sesame seeds, um, blending it into nut butters, um, so that's the kind of the basic to seed cycling. Um, and then cycle thinking, like I said, we kind of, it is really important to listen to what your body wants at any phase. So there are points in your cycle where you do feel kind of a bit lethargic and a bit tired. And generally speaking in our luteal phase, which is the second half, um, your body is just kind of crying out for you to take it easy. Um, so honoring that and doing yoga or going for walks or swimming, that's the kind of the thing that if you're quite like, like me, like a type A person, you'll, you'll want to think, no, actually this is what my body wants right now. This is what it's going to serve. This is how it's going to serve it most effectively. Um, and then just after our kind of our periods have, have finished, um, that's, most, most women kind of find, and when I talk about this, they go, Oh my gosh, yeah, I feel so energized after my period. Um, that actual, the bleed after your menstruation. Yeah. Um, you'll like, generally speaking, it'll be the last day or the, a few days after. So utilize that time to kind of get in that higher intensity workout. Um, and I think that's, I think we, with PCOS especially, and if there's time, if we ever, I also like to do, I also like to kind of do this protocol with hypothermia. I can never say this word and I always, it always happens when I'm on a podcast or on an Instagram live. <laughs> Don't worry. Hypothermia, I can't say it. Amenorrhea related to your hypothalamus. That's yeah. what I say. <laughs> um, and I really, really like to implement this because if you're not having a cycle, I think we feel, and I've been there, like you feel so lost and you feel like, you know, everyone else is talking about their period pains and everyone else is talking about how tired they are. And you just kind of want to feel a little bit more in touch with your body. Mm. Um, So this is why I like to do it. Yes, I think there are so many lucky women. And honestly, I say lucky because to have a healthy cycle is such a privilege. Um, Although at times it might not feel like it, it is such a privilege. And I think there are so many women who can benefit from doing these little tweaks of 
what they're eating and making sure they're getting enough leafy greens at certain points in their cycle, making sure that they're getting enough fiber and water in. But if you're not having a period and if you're str- or if you're struggling with irregular periods or longer cycles, there is so much to be said to just feeling a little bit more grounded and a little bit like you're eating for a, a for what your body is is wanting i think if that makes sense yeah yeah um, and we do this by like looking at what the moon's doing um and and i think i don't know it's different for everyone but for me it really really helped just kind of feeling a bit more in touch with my body and a little bit more in touch with nature um so yeah so that's a bit about cycle syncing a little bit and I, I kind of feel like I said first and foremost always address the kind of the underlying issues with insulin resistance and working with your blood sugar but once you have a handle on that cycle thinking could be something so like fun to do as well yeah and so your book obviously like the the first part is taking us through hormones and kind of the ins and outs of what we've discussed here um, and then you've got these lovely recipes that, um, so they're blood sugar balancing. And if people are interested in cycle syncing, they do um, correlate with different phases of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So we kind of, each recipe has a little um, code next to it where we can, where you can match up to what your where you are in your cycle. So for example, um, for your follicular phase, which is from day, I mean, generally speaking, it's day one to day 14, 13. Um, but in the book, we talk about it being that phase just after you've bled, just after you've had your period. Um, and I like to say, because it's your follicular stage, you're nourishing your follicles. Um, and we do that with with healthy fats and folate and vitamin E. And I mean, I'm the biggest fan of nut butter. And I don't think <laughs> there's any better way to get in healthy fats and vitamin E than almond butter. Um, so it's just about having these really kind of healthy, kind of fatty foods that are just going to really kind of serve your body well. And I have some kind of homemade nut butter recipes in there um that are life-changing as soon as you do it yourself you realize how easy it is um and like during our menstrual cycle when we're actually bleeding and you just feel a bit kind of just a bit yucky it's really great to kind of stock up on anti-inflammatory staples so I love a dal and I have a dal recipe in there and I love curries and stews. And I mean, right now it's boiling hot and we probably don't want that. <laughs> but just doing like an iced turmeric latte or something like that, getting yeah. in turmeric, getting in ginger, um, getting in these foods that just really give you a, a hug from the inside out. Um, and then your luteal stage, where obviously your hormones are just fluctuating all over the place, just making sure that you're supporting your gut. And I think during our luteal phase, you know, I find a lot of women just feel that their moods their mood swings and their mood kind of takes over a little bit mm. and really leading up to your period you just feel a bit anxious or a bit kind of upset or just generally speaking you don't really know where your head's at um and a lot of that we can control with how we're with our gut health um and I know gut health is kind of the the biggest like the most <laughs> the trendiest thing right now but honestly our serotonin's made in our gut and i think we if we're supporting the kind of the natural um motility of our gut through 
fiber and you know buckwheat does this and just getting in loads of high fiber um, foods you know I whenever I work with clients they say I say that I don't care what you do but just make sure that you're getting a tablespoon of tablespoon of chia seeds and a tablespoon of flax seeds into every single breakfast um because that is so much fiber and not only does it keep you full and regulate blood sugar levels but you're also supporting your gut um to again get rid of all these kind of healthy um these metabolized hormones through healthy bowel movements but you're also supporting your moods and your your happiness um, and it's difficult because i i think we the, the problem with the pill um is that we forget that it actually really disrupts our microbiome and our gut health, um, as well as kind of leading us with a lot of nutritional um, deficiencies. Um, you know, B6 yes, is one yeah. of our most, it's, it's so important for our, um, for our mood. And I, I think when I was on the pill and coming off, off the pill, I struggled again with so much anxiety. And if I had known that that wasn't necessarily my fault, um, it would have made such a difference. Um, and B6 is needed in the conversion of glutamate to GABA, which is GABA is our really calming neurotransmitter. Um, that generally speaking, when we have um, anxiety, um, is lacking. So just getting in, I generally speaking, I recommend a B complex, but B6 is so vital for your kind of, for anxiety and your mental health. Um, and that's just an, a kind of another problem with the with the contraceptive pill that we have all these problems already with our hormonal imbalances, but yet you're kind of then chucking on something again that is just kind of I like to think of it just pulling out <laughs> all this goodness that we really really need. Um, so yeah, so I can't remember exactly what your question was. I feel like I've got a question. <laughs> no, that was super helpful. I wanted to ask actually you reminded me but I, I had actually forgotten that um so you use a lot of chia and flax in your book but I don't eat flax because so there's this really interesting thing going on with hormone experts where some of them are saying if you're estrogen dominant eat flax seeds because they're going to kind of like take up the space where excess estrogen is going to be in the, in the simplest term and I found it worsened my symptoms. And Dr. Jessica Drummond said that in her practice, she found that she was witnessing worsening symptoms with foods like flax seeds, um, soy, and estrogen, um, estrogen, and um, chia. Now, I've never heard about chia kind of being a phytoestrogen. Um, so I've actually asked her to kind of write me a little bit about this for my ebook but what's your experience with that because it seems like on paper it sounds like it's a good idea for people with estrogen dominance but then in practice it doesn't always work for people with endo and yeah estrogen dominance have you witnessed anything around that so i've never heard about the chia seed thing but I neither have i and it's completely thrown me that's really interesting but i definitely like to hear but i definitely with flax seeds um they are a phytoestrogen um so and so is kind of tofu and tempeh and edamame and miso as well mm. um so uh, so soy contains um 
isoflavin or something like fly flavones this is awful that i have i've never been i wrote a book but i'm really awful with words um so yes they they do it's similar to the way that our kind of estrogen um reacts within our body but it does have so a, a significantly weaker effect um and they're very different to the kind of um the xenoestrogens that we find in kind of plastic yeah, these, yeah. To- these environmental toxins um which do in a lot of ways we found do worsen kind of women's symptoms of hormone imbalance and women's health issues um they recently recent kind of research has shown that there is generally speaking quite a neutral um neutral and not necessarily almost beneficial kind of effects of them um however it's interesting because on one hand we do have studies that show that the the adding in more kind of estrogen like compounds for especially for endometriosis and estrogen dominance isn't it does have these effects like you said kind of worsening your symptoms but then we have other studies that show that like you said we've been told that it can actually reduce those symptoms as well um i really really recommend so if i have i have i've had some clients in the past who have who with perimenopause um which is when your estrogen is really kind of um your estrogen levels are really um low that adding in these organic unprocessed kind of um phytoestrogens like soy um like i said edamame miso um tempeh flax seeds um can be so so beneficial however that's really interesting that you found that your symptoms kind of worsened and i think honestly it is a case of taking that information and just witnessing and being really really in touch with how your body's reacting to it for myself i have low estrogen and that means that i like i'm fine with flax seeds and i do notice a difference um but again everyone is different and not everyone can kind of take on that um that even that tiny bit of kind of estrogen mimicking compound um but that's really interesting to hear that you that you found quite a significant difference yeah it's it's a super interesting area that I wish there was a more concrete answer but there's so like everything with hormone health it's you know it's like well we're we're kind of all different but it kind of makes sense that if you're low estrogen and you're noticing a difference that someone with high estrogen would also notice a difference but I guess what the theory is and what they found in studies where it proves beneficial is that that estrogen that kind of estrogen mimicker is weaker and it's better than having you know more estrogen because it's taking up space where the real estrogen would be I think yeah yeah and I think it really really does depend on your body and where your hormones are um, because like I said we're all so so different and I think with endometriosis um the you really really want to be kind of focusing on getting making sure that you don't have this excess of estrogen um so adding in a kind of a compound or a uh, a type of food that is going to then further raise that i do see how that obviously is going to 
not have the same effect as someone who we do need to raise that a little bit. It's it's really interesting. I'm sure that they're They've already done some studies and I guess because they're, the data is a bit conflicting that they continue to to do so. Yeah, yeah. I will say, though, that I think because I get so many questions on this and honestly, I never really know how to answer it, mostly because I, I mean, I admittedly haven't done an awful lot of research on myself I've, um, by myself. I, it's still something that I'm kind of continuously trying to learn and find out more. But I always say that I, so I have a lot, I work with a lot of vegan girls um, and with dogs they kind of come to me and it's full of these fake meats and fake cheeses and I say that if something if your form if the source of soy that you are having is as far removed as what it started with then I think then we really really need to worry um yeah and I think we really really urge everyone (laughs) to stay away from those kind of regardless of where your hormones are the kind of the fake the fake meats, the fake cheeses, um, soy yogurts, the things that aren't are overly processed and aren't organic because soy in itself is a heavily, heavily pesticized um, and sprayed crop. Um, so I think we, I think overall, that's probably the kind of the starting point with it. And then seeing where you're, and then making sure that we're avoiding those as much as possible. And then seeing where your tolerance is with things like organic tofu and organic tempeh and miso and things like that. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Do you have a, because you were obviously mentioning how important fiber is, if someone did notice that shear or flax was a problem, can is there anything else that you would recommend other than like lots of vegetables? Is there any kind of like super high fiber food that you would recommend to add in yeah I mean I'm a really really big advocate of whole grains and I know that and there is I think probably almost every single recipe in my book has some kind of whole grain in there um mostly because they are so rich in fiber and they are also so rich in all these different minerals as well that could be really beneficial so I like to say that if you are having I mean, I'm more of a smoothie kind of girl for for breakfast. But if you are having porridge for breakfast, trying to swap your oats for something like quinoa or buckwheat, um, that's amazing. Um, And yeah, again, just like overload your plate with vegetables. Generally speaking, I think we have got pretty good. Um, And I mean, I don't know. I live in this little health bubble where I think everyone is super healthy. (laughs) Um, But I do see that. And I mean, even on Instagram and places like that, I do see that we are kind of learning that a plant-based diet and I mean when the majority of your plate is kind of full of plants and these really really um whole kind of like leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables and whole grains and forms of and some nuts and some um seeds I think we we're recognizing that that is the healthiest way to live and then you're obviously opting for a kind of a quality protein source and a fat source as well um and that i think is the best way just to get in make sure you're getting enough fiber um just make sure every plate that you have you're you're focusing on um vegetables and plants um and they say that you know we need 30 different types of plants a week um able to have this really healthy um population in our guts and that we're feeding um the microbes in our guts to be able to do their jobs again which is to get rid of um all these metabolized hormones that we don't want circulating and causing a dominance um and to help with our mood and energy levels and everything um so and i think that's pretty easy i think 30 a week is absolutely doable um and that doesn't have to 
have to mean like 30 different, that doesn't mean 30 different portions of spinach. That means you have your spinach, you have your chard, you have your kale, you then would have broccoli or cauliflower or, um, and even nuts and seeds and all these different plants. Um, counts as a, just a different variety. Okay. So it's not just fruit and veg, like, no, no. Okay. And would that include grains as well? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think, cause I think I, so I recently kind of done a bit of experimenting, um, in terms of blood sugar. So when I was, so I was vegan for two years and I found that my meals were very heavily, um, so I would have a kind of a veggie curry that would have either like chickpeas or lentils. And then I would have a, a really big side of brown rice. And then I would have more veggies on the side. And I found that although I felt so energized and I felt amazing, and I was getting in all these amazing kind of sources of minerals and vitamins and phytonutrients and fiber. Um, I did kind of start to wonder whether that was almost a little bit too carbohydrate heavy. Um, so I think it's also about making sure, and this is one thing that I triumph when I talk about blood sugar is that you're looking at your plate and making sure that your macronutrients, as much as you're getting in enough, um, of those healthy micronutrients that you do balance your macronutrients, um, effectively. Um, so if you have got your kind of your whole grain or your, your source of legumes, keep that, and then kind of focus on the rest and keep that as your carbohydrate source. So I'll do like a quarter cup of chia of um, quinoa now, um, a quarter to half a cup. It kind of depends on like what exercise I'm doing that day. And then I'll make sure that I've got a, my kind of healthy fat source and my healthy protein source as well. So I'm starting to think a little bit more about, although kind of flooding your plate with non-starchy vegetables is so, so important. Just also make sure that if you are mostly plant-based or if you are kind of that's the diet that you're going for make sure you are also focusing on your protein and your fat source because that is the thing that's going to help um keep blood sugar balanced um and i that i think was the problem that i struggled with a little bit when i was vegan is that i was consuming such a high quantity of carbohydrates um that it almost threw my blood off my blood sugar off a little bit yeah and i'm really glad you brought this up because it's something that i'm really struggling with I'm vegan as well and not so much now because I am working on balancing my blood sugar but I used to have like these really big healthy meals and I'd be constantly starving like all the time and my energy was not not great obviously that's partially to do with endo but um it was definitely to do with blood sugar as well and I was like you know, I would like make myself a Buddha bowl for lunch and it would have like black beans with it and some sweet potato and some like quinoa and then other veggies. So obviously really carb heavy, but I guess what I struggle with now, and I know that on Instagram, you talked about you have brought in eggs and fish into your diet to kind of help balance that out. Is that, would you, so I see you need your protein source. So that would be in my case from like, from beans so then if you've got beans which are quite starchy would you just keep to like beans avocado for example and um vegetables and some nuts and seeds and not have the grain within that meal because you've already got quite a lot of carb going on with the beans and you 
don't want to cut out that protein. Do you do you see what I mean? This is kind yeah. of going back to what we were yeah. talking about before we started recording that it's this kind of like how how analytical and precise do you get? Oh, I know. And this is the thing. And I I go that's a, the plate you just said to me for my body sounds perfect because I've noticed a significant difference in when I like I said the majority of my plate was carbohydrates to when I really, really focused on fat and protein and fiber first. Um, and it is so, so difficult with vegan diets. And I, it was a really, really difficult decision for me to, to kind of go from a vegan diet to adding in, I started adding in wild caught salmon. Um, then over the last kind of half year or so, I then implemented eggs again. And it was so difficult for me because I think, I mean, all over social media and all over everywhere we look, I think we kind of are surrounded by these like very black or white messages about what we eat. Yeah. There's never a gray area. There's never like you and labels. I think I got quite stuck in this label of, you know, like I've written a vegan book, although we do talk about protein, um, non-vegan protein sources. Um, and I, the majority of what I did was all around plant-based um, recipes and vegan recipes. And it was a very difficult decision to say, actually, I think what my body needs right now is a bit more protein and a bit more fat. I didn't, I don't necessarily think it was about having more protein and fat because I was getting a lot of fat on my vegan diet. Like I said, I'm a, an absolute fiend for nut butter and avocados and coconut yogurt. But I think what it was is that my meals were just they were way too carbohydrate heavy for my PCOS, which we know has very strong links to insulin resistance. But this is how I, how I mean, everyone is so different. You know, I see girls who thrive on vegan diets and it is the best thing for them. But for me, I just found that I was kind of going on about balancing blood sugar when I was having the majority of my meal was carbohydrate based. Um, so, and I mean, fat in itself and I've always been kind of fat first, um, is for a hormone healthy diet and for whatever we, whatever ailments we have and whatever, wherever the kind of the root of our imbalance comes from fat is going to serve everyone so well as women, you know, our hormones are made from fat. It keeps us full, which in terms of blood sugar grazing throughout the day, regardless of what we've been told, you know, having all these small meals, it's, especially when you have PCOS, it's actually the opposite. We want to be making sure that we're kind of leaving a little bit longer. So we don't constantly have this kind of need for our body to release insulin and constantly be utilizing all this, um, all this glucose constantly throughout the day, because that's when we kind of can then lead to this insulin resistance, again, which we know is linked to PCOS. Um, So fat is essentially the, the first thing I like to think of when I think of a hormone healthy meal. Um, and you can absolutely get that from a plant-based diet. You can get, like I said, avocados, coconut yogurt. I eat coconut yogurt every single day, coconut milk, coconut butter, um, nuts and seeds. Like there are so many nuts and seeds out there to try. There are so many different types of nut butter. Um, and I personally still, even though I do fish and I do eggs, plant-based sources of fat are still my favorite. Um, because avocados themselves, they have fiber in them. Um, so having a smoothie with an avocado in it, um, and some nut butter, you've already got like a fiber source and a fat source. Um, and then 
the this the thing like you said with the having the beans I found again as if I was having like a, a very kind of legume um heavy curry or a stew um that I would then be adding a further source of carbohydrates um in my grains or my quinoa or whatever um which are so again so healthy I don't want people to cut out because we no, need it yeah we, we need these um complex carbohydrates for our bodies to function properly again like our thyroid relies on um um them to, as a source of energy and our ovaries rely on them and as women we need it but i do think um it's really really key to kind of look at your plate and just make sure that you're not overwhelmed with them um and yeah and i think if you for anyone listening if they do ever make that cha- that decision to kind of to implement um, animal sources of protein back in just make sure that they are the highest quality you can possibly find I very much believe that we need to stop eating so much meat just as just as for our planet <laughs> not yeah, necessarily yeah. for us but as but as I just think it's so so important so I think if you can quality over quantity is so important when it comes to whatever meat you're eating and whatever fish you're having and you know i do a bit like I said I recently found um a slightly thug, uh, sluggish thyroid so I have to make sure that all my fish is of highest quality that I possibly can and I won't do tuna and I won't do anything that I know has high levels of mercury because that can really affect it as well um so yeah and the same with eggs just always just always make sure that it's the highest quality um produce you can find you know um it's great to do organic um vegetables but generally speaking if you're going to put your money anywhere put it in the the fish the meat and the eggs um and if you do dairy again make sure it's kind of full fat the highest quality you can possibly find yeah especially for people with with endometriosis because you know so so many of the well all of the non-organic animals are have added pro added hormones to keep them making babies and dairy and and things like that so we do have to be really careful there just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU these natural patches last for 12 hours so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day to shop, just head to the link in my show notes. This episode is also sponsored by my free guide, Managing Endometriosis Naturally. If you don't know where to start with beginning to take a holistic approach to managing your endometriosis symptoms, then this might help you. Um, if you'd like to download it, just head to the show head to the show notes and follow the link and you can get your free copy. So I, I'm really conscious of sounding like paranoid, but I want to ask the questions that people, if I struggle with them, then others will. And so I don't, I think like what we discussed earlier before is that like, I was following like a um, phase kind of protocol and a blood sugar balancing protocol. And then I was like, well, how do I, manage all of these carbohydrates as a vegan and felt that I was eating meals that were way too small but I was just trying to follow what the book was telling me to do and then I was starving all the time so would you suggest that people just see how 
see how they feel. And if they feel that, you know, they want also, it's about having some joy in your food as well. Like I have lost so many great recipes because I'm like, well, I can't really, well, I did lose great recipes because I felt that I couldn't mix the beans and the grains, but perhaps you could just kind of half your portions of both of them so that they're kind of making up one portion of complex carbs. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's because I know we spoke about this before we jumped on this podcast. It is so tricky because we are fed so much information um, from every direction today about what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating. And it, it, I am not surprised at all that so many of us end up just feeling freaked out when it comes to food. You know, for me, it was this case of, well, I'm doing everything right. I'm eating super, super healthy, but nothing's working. And my hair is falling out more than ever. And my acne is awful. Um, so, and I, and it just led me feeling like, well, I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, so like if for me, when I look back at the kind of everything that I've learned, it, like I said, I have, it does not surprise me that I suffered with an eating disorder because it just, it was, it was this constant struggle of not feeling like anything I was doing was working. Um, and I think losing happiness in food and losing the love and that joy that food brings us in some ways can have a little bit more of a negative impact than the food itself ever will on our body yeah um and I think for myself I've I've seen significant patterns of my health when I've perhaps had you know a donut or something and then I've worried about that donut all week long and really I think it probably wasn't even the donut itself that would have caused all these symptoms to flare up it was probably just the stress around the donut um And I say, I think I say in my book that, you know, you can have all the kale smoothies in the world, but if you're doing so out of spite and hate and you're on the tube and you're rushing around, I think that is not healthy. Um, And I think that, you know, I've been to so many, I've missed out on so many amazing meals out and I missed out on so many kind of nights out with friends just because I've been so terrified to set my hormones off or to for my skin to break out. And I think that if that is where you are, I think you need to kind of readdress, but it is so tricky because then on the other hand, if I don't follow this kind of this consistent, I I say diet, but you know what I mean? Lifestyle of, of eating what I know I serves my body well, um, you know, focusing on the fat and the protein and not doing sugar and, omitting certain things then I know that everything kind of stays at bay and that does bring me happiness and I think it's difficult because I have a lot of kind of family members or my boyfriend will be like oh just have it just have the sugary cake just have this but knows what it's like to be suffering with um these symptoms of um and I'm sure you know, and I'm sure everyone listening knows no one knows unless you unless they're dealing with it themselves what it feels like to have um, constant pain, constant fatigue, um, for me, for my hair to be falling out or for my skin to be constantly flaring up no matter what I did. Um, so I think in some ways, I think it is important that you find that kind of protocol that works for you and that you honor your body and love it in a way 
that you that you know what you're eating is nourishing it and you enjoy it at the same time. And it is a really fine line between becoming obsessive, but being smart as well. Um, and for me, that's what it, it constantly is this struggle between, right, I know I need to enjoy my life. And I know that this donut every now and then isn't going to do anything really. But then it's also making sure that every day I'm kind of m- having these foods that are nourishing. But I think what's important, and I mean, the, the key for me was learning. Honestly, I think it was learning how to cook. And I think it was learning how to make food, my food in a way that I absolutely loved and was delicious. And, you know, I make chocolate mousse now that has pumpkin and it has cacao and coconut, um, coconut cream. And it has a little bit of protein powder. That's the sweetness. And that to me is just heaven. <laughs> and I've got to the point now where like, I would rather have that than, a dairy milk bar because yeah, yeah. for me that that pumpkin chocolate mousse is so and I the the sweet potato mousse in the book is exactly the same um just a little plug there <laughs> <laughs> and I and that makes me feel amazing and it gives me so much joy and so much happiness because it's delicious and I can eat that way and I can have it every day and it's not going to do anything but I enjoy my food um and I think that I say there's there's a page in the book that talks about happiness and this is where everything kind of comes from. I think the stress plays such a such a big role in how our how our bodies behave and how all our kind of symptoms interact with each other. And if your diet is causing you stress, then it I think it's time to rethink. Um and for me, again, it was just this case. I think everyone has to find their thing. For me, it was learning how to cook and learning how to love my food and cooking in a way that brought me joy. And also bringing other people into that as well. So I make my boyfriend a a chocolate smoothie every day. um, And he loves that. And for me, that's my way of bringing him into my world. You know, he'll come to my healthy Mm. camp and he'll, he'll, he'll involve himself as much as he can. But then I still respect that he wants to eat his treats every now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But and also and cooking for my family and, you know, all those things and just bringing your world out because I think sometimes when you are struggling with things like with something like PCOS or endometriosis it feels very lonely and it feels like you're in this bubble where no one understands that you have to eat in a certain way or you have to act in a certain way but bring that bubble and uh, and expand it slightly and you know bring your family in and cook for them and bring your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your brother or sister to a yoga class and you know I think I think just try and make it a little bit less lonely um so yeah that's I think that might have answered your question but I do also think that like you said I think it is about consistency and you know I've tried eating a certain way for a month and I've been like oh well that doesn't work for me I'm I'm done like I'm on to the next way of eating or I'm gonna cut this food out but it's about being consistent and giving your body enough time to adapt to a certain kind of way of eating or a certain way of moving and letting it kind of find what works for it um, and we're all different so just because someone on Instagram is having an acai bowl every day and they look amazing or just because someone's having eating keto and that works for them don't necessarily think you have to be st- have to kind of adapt every single thing every strict way of eating just because it works for someone else um, and monitoring your symptoms and really looking within at what is working for you. I think that's the kind of the 
the way to do it. And it's it's a slow process, but you do get there. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's really helpful. I have so many questions that I that keep popping up that I could just keep talking to you for hours. Um, can I hold you for another ten minutes? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, okay. So, quick one. When it comes to like your treats, obviously you ha- were saying about um, you make your mousse and stuff. What's do you? Because I tend to like treat myself in my spring and ovulation phase because if I start to eat kind of sugar, um, so I can't really think of an example, but um, something that could seem like blood sugar balancing could be like if you want to have like a a date to balance that sugar you might have loads of like fat with it and cover it with seeds and stuff but I couldn't eat that a day before my period for example because the sugar in the dates quite high and I would be in a lot of pain so I will tend to have my kind of like sugary treats and, and treats I will um balance them to make them blood sugar balancing but I'll kind of keep them for the weekends in my spring and and ovulation phase. Um, recently, because I've been kind of under a lot of stress this year, I have been going a little bit nuts. <laughs> I like have like one thing and then it just creates like a cascade of like, yeah. But they're not, they're not, if someone, I guess if someone looked at like a, what I was eating in a day, they'd be like, oh, this is, this is great. But I know it's not good for me, if that makes sense. Like on the Monday, I feel kind of like death. So I was just wondering, like, when it comes to you treating yourself, if we're going back to like the happiness thing, what would like a what would that look like for you? At, do do you treat yourself at the weekend, or when would when would kind of like those allowances come in for you? Yeah. So with me, I found that. So I obviously when I was when back when I was eighteen and I went on the super super strict diet, um, it was very much this cheat day mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I was super, super healthy throughout the week. And then one day I would just go for it. And I mean, go for it. And I think that in itself is what caused me to have a binge eating disorder. Um, So I'm super conscious. And again, this is about knowing your mind, know, know your body, but know your mind as well. And I found that for me now, if I say, right, I'm going to be super, super healthy throughout the week. And then I'm going to have one day where I'm allowing myself to have this it brings back those feelings of being like, right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And when you're out and about and you allow yourself, so to speak, to have this donut, your your body is like, I want more because it feels like it's naughty. It feels like it's restricted. And there is no stopping you in that moment really from just kind of spiraling. <laughs> um, so I t- nowadays I tend to think of it as not really – a treat or a treat day mentality. I like to think of it as just being like, if I want something, I will have it. But I trust myself enough to know that I can, I don't really know how to phrase it really. I think I I know myself enough to know what I, to know my kind I don't know, because I never want to say say it as in that I'm treating myself or allowing myself because I don't ever think food should be a reward or something that you're restricting. But I I think it's just come with enough practice that I know that I'm going to make myself something alternative that is going to serve me both my mind, like I said, for example, like a healthier kind of chocolate mousse that I know doesn't 
have any sugar in it than having that and allowing that moment to be the joyful moment rather than going and having a kind of a treat meal because I know the one on one the other the first option is more of a consistent and more of a sustainable a sustainable way of living because I can have these kind of pockets of what I deem to be delicious and healthy throughout the week rather than something that is delicious and unhealthy every once in a while if that makes sense. But at the same time, I do look at my life and I think, what are these moments that I want to enjoy? So if I go on holiday, I will have a holiday and I will enjoy it. And I've got a trip coming up to LA soon. And I've got a list of all these amazing places that I'm going to eat. And I think if I was to restrict and really, really pull myself back and not enjoy it, I think I would come back from that holiday just feeling so sad, um, that I hadn't kind of allowed myself to experience all these new foods. Um, so I do think it's about making sure that that within that moment you're doing it for the right reasons and that you're doing it because it's a moment that you want to remember and the food is going to serve you for that moment and it's going to connect you to the people that you're around as well um rather than you're doing it because you haven't had anything naughty for 2 weeks so now's your chance or you feel tired so now's your chance um i think because in the really in the long term, that's not building a sustainable relationship with food. But also, again, like we said, if you know that that date is going to cause you pain the next day, or if I know that a, a donut or I keep on saying this donut because I just had those donut time donuts recently and all I can talk about <laughs> is these donut time donuts. Um, if you if you have that and you and you know that the next day for me, it's my skin. Um, sugar is just the one thing that just, if it, my, I honestly can see a difference within the next day. Um, and if I know that I don't want to face that, then it's not worth it to me. Um, so I do think it's about doing it in a way that's building a long-term sustainable, healthy relationship to food and nourishing your body in a way that doesn't necessarily, um, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. No, that's that's really helpful because I guess like my problem and something that I encounter with a lot of the books that I read and what I would really love to tackle in the future when, you know, when I release a physical book is this thing that like for, for me, I can't really. So, for example, like um, people call them different things, energy balls. I'm just going to call them that because I can't think of the yeah. other word. Like energy balls are quite like even though they're really great and nourishing for a lot of people to have as a daily snack for example um I couldn't do that like I couldn't consistently do that like all month long as a reliable snack because by the time that my period comes I'm going to be crippled in pain and um and it's the same like really like in in the you know in the autumn and winter phases I really just have to cut out like sugar entirely and I'm like a couple of days before my period like I I can't even really have like blueberries even though they're like low sugar like I'm really I'm really just veg heavy at that point what it it was fine I guess maybe it's something to do with my stress levels but now it's becoming this thing where because I'm like so sugar deprived for two weeks <laughs> by the time I get into my spring I'm like and because I love to cook as well, I'm, I love to cook and I love to bake and um, I don't eat gluten and 
dairy because partially because of um, endo and hormones, but also because I'm really intolerant to them both. So I find these incredible recipes and I'm like, right, making that and I'm making that and I'm making that. And (laughs) it, you know, and then you're, you're out as well. So it, it has become, I wouldn't say a, a, a binge mentality because I've, I've been there as well. Um, and I am considerate with the things that I eat. There is a level of like, there is a level of like, I don't want to say the word self-control, but like mindfulness there, but Uh, it, it does feel like it is this kind of like, I just want to get through my menstruation so that I can, (laughs) so that I can eat something sugary again. Yeah, (laughs) I completely agree. And I think, um, here's where I may be contradicting myself a little bit from what I just said, but when you have endometriosis or when you have PCOS or say if you have fibroids or if you have um, amenorrhea and you're really dealing with something that has such a huge impact on your everyday to the point where you know you're you feel where your anxiety controls your life or where you feel like you can't get out of bed the thing sugar and things like gluten and dairy for some people these things really really do have a big impact um and it's different for everyone So I think when I wrote the book, I just really was conscious. Um, On one hand, I was conscious about writing a book in that wouldn't set anyone off and that wouldn't, because I've read so many books where they're like, you can't have this and you can't have that. And And I was so conscious about making it quite a baseline book for someone, for my, my reader was a girl who had, you know, a couple of symptoms and she was struggling a little bit with her health and just really wanted to get back to basics on using whole foods, whole ingredients, but also wanted to eat in a way that if she wanted to have a bit of sugar, she could have an energy ball or she'd have um, a healthy dessert um, using these kind of alternative sources um, of sweetness. However, it's still very different to the way that I eat today. Um, And I'm sure the way that you eat as well, because even things like dates and uh, maple syrup and um, I guess coconut sugar and all these kind of healthier sources, while for most people, Um, And I always go back to my boyfriend, like I would love for that to be the only source of sugar that he has because (laughs) my boyfriend, (laughs) yes, exactly. Because it's way better than what he's doing now. And for all my friends, like they're fine on things like that. It's absolutely fine. But when you have such a, a kind of, when you have such a hormonal imbalance that is really affecting your day to day life, I do think that we do have to be a little bit more mindful about these sources because like you said at the beginning, we look on Instagram and everyone's got these acai bowls and everyone's got energy balls and everyone's having all these amazing raw desserts. And yes, they're a healthier option, but at the same time, they are still packed full of sugar that, like I said, if you're, if you've got PCOS and if the root cause of that is to do with your insulin, all it's doing is throwing your blood sugar off. Um, and it's still really in some ways like, your body reacts to it the same way as if you were going to have like a bar of dairy milk or a sugary, um, cupcake, like your body does react to it in the same way. Yes, of course, the dates have fiber, they have so many more minerals, but if you are really trying to set, if you're really trying to focus on balancing your blood sugar and making sure that, and, and lowering levels of inflammation in the body, you do kind of have to mindfully take it back a step and think right how is this banana in my acai bowl reacting with them within my body like is it having the same effect the way that do I feel the same as if I had had like uh, two bananas or 
dates and some maple syrup in there as well. Like you do, it's difficult because yes, for most people, it's a healthier option. But I think when your hormone levels are so out and when you are struggling with these problems, I do think it is about being super mindful that sugar is sugar at the end of the day. Um, and I think, like you said, you kind of, you learn what your, what your boundary, you learn your levels of tolerance. Um, and everyone is different, you know? So I, it most generally speaking, most people are fine with little bits every now and then. Um, but just learn what works for you. Like really monitor, be, be super, super mindful of what your body's doing. And if you are going to have that moment where you, um, again, like, I don't want to say allow yourself, but if you are going to have this moment where you're thinking, you know what, I'm in the right moment. I really just want this, this raw dessert, or I want this or that. Um, just be mindful of it. Don't just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, yeah, that, no, that's really helpful because it it is complicated. And I just, I think it's important that we have these discussions actually, because it does all vary, you know, like it does, it does vary on each person. And, um, and I guess for, for anyone who is listening, who's kind of in a similar boat to me, like, I think some of the, and then you've talked about it recently, actually, as well. So going to check out Megan's Instagram is a great idea. Like having like natural sweeteners that are, that are sugar free can be really helpful or adding like protein powder into bakes or mousses. Um, and the same as you, like, like last year I discovered like, like making an avocado mousse with protein powder in and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. And uh-huh. I've recently just discovered like how much I love hundred percent dark chocolate. So that doesn't have yep. any sugar in. And uh-huh. I've actually got to the point where I don't realize it doesn't have sugar in. It's exactly the same to me as eating chocolate. Um, the unfortunate thing is that it triggers my, um, my painful bladder syndrome. So, cause the cacao is so strong. Um, yeah. but there are definitely like ways around it. And I guess it's about experimenting and looking for recipes online. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think for me now, I can't have anything less than a hundred percent. Cause I'm like, it's too sweet. Like, and it's not chocolatey enough. Um, you're so right. I, um, there are so many protein powders out there now that have so, I mean, always be mindful, always check your ingredients because there are also, yeah, some of them are a bit weird yeah, birthday cake flavored protein powder I'm just like that's a no um yeah but I think absolutely like I'll do so I love vivo life um and I believe and also moon juice do a really good one if you're in the states they do both their protein powders have stevia in them and I'm starting to kind of get into that zone where I'm okay with that because it doesn't affect blood sugar um same with monk fruit um and obviously everything within um within what's the word I'm looking for within everything reason yeah everything within reason um I'm going crazy now <laughs> everything within reason, but just um that's a really really great alternative so again like you said do that in a chocolate mousse um I'm uh, everyone I work with I I say start your day with you know a smoothie and I'll do um a half an avocado or do a tablespoon of nut butter I'll do some protein powder that has that little bit of kind of natural sweetness um almond milk I don't do a banana in there because I know for me that's going to swipe my blood sugar yeah, in the yeah. afternoon um and then again like 100% dark chocolate is amazing I'll melt it down and do little nut, um nut butter cups or coconut butter cups and there are so many things and 
coconut itself is just so naturally sweet and cinnamon is amazing to use. And, you know, I think we are so kind of tuned to go to these little healthy cafes and have a turmeric latte, forgetting that they'll probably put some maple syrup or some coconut sugar in there. But you don't need that. You Cinnamon itself is so kind of sweet and amazing. And so is coconut milk. So it's about looking at every single meal that you're having or every single kind of dessert or breakfast and thinking like, can I get rid of this? I remember when I used to do porridge every day for breakfast, I would have a tablespoon of maple syrup and I gradually would just cut it down. So it got to the point where I wasn't having anything at all. And then I would replace that with all the nut butter or all the kind of the cacao nibs and stuff, just things that still felt delicious and decadent and amazing, but didn't have that sugar in them. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, absolutely. And there's so many resources out there. Um, I think there is, I don't like, I don't like to talk about any specific diets too much, but I'm such a fan of looking up keto desserts because they really, really focus on making. I agree. Yeah. It's amazing. There's so many out there. I love the the bulletproof, um, blog. Um, if you're ever in need of any kind of sugar-free, um, recipes, they are fab. Um, and yeah, and they still taste great. Like really not missing out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really helpful. I just got into the Bulletproof blog actually. So, but I didn't see their recipes. So I'm going to check that out. Um, and I agree. I have found like, um, even though I know that like long-term keto diets are not necessarily great for women, I think there's some kind of stuff around thyroid with that, but like the desserts, um, the desserts are great that I found online. So Last question. I'm so sorry. I've kept you longer than any guest I think I've ever, <laughs> ever kept on. Um, but this is something that has come up for me. Um, you've mentioned fats a lot. And I just wondered, because people are still a bit scared of fats. And if you're not too immersed in this world, it, it might still, they might still seem quite scary. So you're obviously a big advocate of good fats because they help balance your blood sugar. Um, but which fats are kind of like the healthier ones that we should be looking out for and how much should we kind of be incorporating into our meals because a lot of the kind of books that I have read in the past are just like oh add some fats add some fats and I'm like well like how much should I be adding should I you know yeah. like yeah. um because I felt that at one point I was kind of eating like so much that it was almost making me feel a bit sick so yeah. Yeah. Just kind of what, what level should we look, be looking for? So with fat, I like to think, um, I would rather you have a fat and this different, again, different for everyone, but I would rather you have one meal a day that is focused on fat than being the kind of the primary, primarily the primary macronutrient rather than a really kind of carbohydrate rich, um, meal. So I would rather, you focus on your fats and then think about your source of carbohydrates. Um, and that's how big I am on, on making sure your meal is, um, is fat focused just because there, I've seen so many girls who are scared of fats. Like you said, kind of don't, don't see the place for them. Um, and for, but forgetting how much as women we need them. Um, and so I like to think of it like this. And every, again, I'm sorry, I just keep on saying this, but everyone is different. So there isn't really any kind of limb there, there isn't really a definitive amount that I like to recommend. Um, I think it depends on you. If you're feeling sick after your meal, you've gone too far. If you're feeling too full after your meal, you've gone too far. However, for your breakfast, it should keep you going until lunchtime. 
really you should be having a breakfast that kind of feel turns off those hunger hormones and makes you feel full and that's what fat does um and makes you feel full satisfied and energized until lunchtime if you're having a snack between breakfast and lunchtime i mean of course it's a little bit different if you're then having a really really early breakfast going to the gym then having a late lunch that is different but i'm talking about if you're getting up you're getting ready for work you have your breakfast at about nine o'clock and then you're having lunch at about one you shouldn't really need a snack between breakfast and lunchtime that's so interesting I always need a snack and I can't work out what to eat to stop that it seems to just be like I get hungry really easily but it also it again like it is different for everyone so it just depends how big your meals are and what you're doing and I think you I mean realistically and it is especially when it comes to PCOS I really like to avoid too many snacks so I like like to kind of think about doing a re bit your breakfast being the biggest meal of the day. Like I want 600 calories in there. I do want two fat sauces. So, and that doesn't necessarily mean like a whole avocado and two tablespoons of, um, nut butter. That means, um, an avocado or a tablespoon of nut butter or two tablespoons of nut butter and no avocado. Okay. Yeah. Um, or if you're doing um, two eggs and half an avocado and some greens, or if you're doing a chia pudding made with coconut milk um, and some nut butter. Um, but again, like if you're getting hungry, just up it and see how you're doing. Um, see how your where your hunger levels are and where your energy levels are. Um, and then obviously um, your protein and fat focused breakfast, um, lunch. Um, and then it is quite normal to feel hungry around four, three, four, four PM. Um, that's, that's normal. It's not, we don't have to feel kind of guilty for them being like, oh, well, my lunch hasn't kind of served me well enough. Like it's okay. And allow yourself to kind of feel that hunger and then keep yourself going with again, another kind of fat focused, um, snack around that time. It's when people, kind of start their day with a croissant or toast and then they get obviously going to see this drop in energy because your blood sugar has spiked and then it's dropped um and and then you're reaching again because what happens is when our blood sugar drops we just want another source of energy we just want another really kind of carbohydrate focused meal so we'll grab a, sa a sandwich from pret and that won't keep that'll be you'll be hungry again an hour later again which is going to lead you to just going for another kind of um not a great snack choice um whereas if you are focusing on fat and focusing on protein you're you're going to make better choices throughout the day and you are going to have more energy throughout the day um but yeah in terms of how much just see how you feel um if you're feeling sick if you're just feeling if you're feeling too full maybe pull it back a little bit but i generally think that we don't get enough fat and I'm more concerned about making sure you're getting enough than you're not getting enough, than you're getting enough than you're not getting enough, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah. And just make sure that again, like all the sources that you're having are, so are, are, are sources that you enjoy and don't just be adding, you know, tons of, tons of olive oil all over your salad and then you're not enjoying it or that you're scoffing nuts just because I said so or just because you feel like you should just make sure that you're you're doing it and you're knowing why and that it's nourishing your body and you're enjoying it um yeah but of course again make sure that you're still thinking about these kind of these sources of carbohydrates I don't want the message to be 
just all fat and no carbohydrates. We still need these kind of healthy sources of um, slow releasing carbohydrates, your grains, your legumes, you know, sweet potatoes are amazing. Um, but I do like to think that every single plate should have its fat source, its protein source, its slow releasing carbohydrate source, and then its fiber. And sometimes those two cross over. And that's quite an, quite an easy rule of thumb to look at each meal and kind of assess it in that way. That's so helpful. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, I've asked you so many questions. Fine. Um, <laughs> but I just feel that, yeah, you have explained everything so well and also have taken into consideration everyone's differences and have made it really accessible. So I just kept wanting to, yeah, <laughs> utilize your, your wisdom. Yes. <laughs> no worries at all. Thank you for having me anyway. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure that I'm going to invite you on again to talk about yes. something else. But um, yeah, it's been brilliant. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a lovely day. And you. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> bye. Bye. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.